Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to John 17. John chapter 17. And let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. We thank you for all that you are for us in your son. And that comes to us through the power of your spirit and the power of the gospel. And as we look at your word, once again, God, would you remind us of how beautiful the gospel is. That a holy God brings rebellious sinners into his presence. Not to destroy them, but to love them precisely because of your son, Jesus. Help us to love you more as we look at your word and as we think about how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a... Greasy black peel. Obviously, I've just butchered and quoted the opening lyrics to the Dr. Seuss song, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. While no disciple of Jesus Christ would say that they view God the Father as Mr. Grinch, many may subtly view God the Father in this light. If there were a Grinch... In the Trinity, many people would say that God the Father would be the Grinch. It's a distorted and twisted and perverted view of God. But many Christians feel as if God the Father is the mean one. I think Kelly Capick has his finger on the pulse of how many of us view God the Father. He says, unfortunately, Many Christians often have a distorted view of the Heavenly Father. We tend to view Him as an angry and full of wrath toward us. While we imagine Jesus as the one who loves us, the Father is portrayed as full of hesitation toward us. Distant at best, furious at worst. It is as if Jesus pleads with the Father to put up with us and to let us live, perhaps even against the Father's desire. We often view Jesus as the kind person of the Trinity, with the Father only wanting us punished. Is the Father, in fact, really reluctant to show tenderness toward people? According to Puritan John Owen, the whole movement of the biblical drama of redemption points in a different direction. Jesus is not the one who convinces the Father to love us, but rather the Son of God becomes incarnate in light of the Father's eternal and free love toward us. The Father is not at odds with the Son, but rather God the Father is love, and out of His love, He sent His Son to die for our sins. While the work of Christ is all important for redemption, it does not make the Father love us, but is rather the outgrowth of God's love. So my prayer today 
is that we would begin to understand God the Father as he truly is and then to respond in worship. I pray that we lose the grinchy view of the Father that we may have and begin to understand him as he is. I pray that we begin to lose our distortions of God and that we begin to embrace him as he has revealed himself in Scripture. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Our big idea today is this. God the Father loves his children just like he loves his Son. God the Father loves believers in Jesus Christ, disciples, Christians, just like and with the exact same kind of love that he loves his son, Jesus. That ought to astonish us. We ought to be flabbergasted by this truth. That a holy God, that God the Father would love rebellious sinners all of his children, just like and with the exact same kind of love that he loves his son Jesus. That should make your jaw drop open. And if you don't believe me, maybe Jesus can convince you. Look at John 17, beginning in verse 20, and hear the words of the Son of God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as, Father, you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In John 17 here, we, and we could spend several weeks here, and we'll come back next week. We could spend several months here. But in John 17, Jesus highlights and underscores the amazing love of God three times in these verses. First, as it pertains to the world. Jesus is praying that the world would know that God the Father sent Jesus and that God the Father loves all believers just like he loves his son Jesus. That's in John 17, 23. Jesus says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So Jesus wants the world to know that God the Father sent him into the world and to understand that God loves believers just like he loves his son. Secondly, God's love relates to the church. Jesus also prays that believers would understand God's great love 
for his children. That's in verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus wants believers, Jesus wants Christians, disciples, the church, to have and to understand and to experience the same love that God the Father has for Jesus, and then to let that love spill over to other believers. Third, God's love relates to the Trinity. Jesus also highlights the fountain from which God the Father's love overflows. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The fountain from which God's love overflows for all of creation that he has made, for all of the world, and for all of his elect children. The fountain from which God's love overflows for creation and his elect children is the fountain of God the Father's love for his Son, Jesus. The reason God loves us is because the love that he has for his Son has overflowed to us. Now, notice that Jesus prays to the Father here in John 17. It's very important for us to see. Jesus has a father. So when we say we are a Christ-centered church, when we talk all the time about the Son of God, about the life and death and resurrection and ascension and soon return of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, when we talk about him all the time, when we rehearse the gospel, we are not highlighting Jesus over the Father or to the exclusion of God the Father. By focusing on the Son of God, Jesus, we are acknowledging that He has a Father. The place to start when discussing God is to begin with Jesus the Son and not just God in some vague sense. When we start with Jesus the Son, we have to then acknowledge that the Son of God has a Father because sons have fathers. This is where Arius went wrong. Remember Arius, the fourth century heretic that we've been talking about over the last few weeks? He believed that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. He believed that God the Father actually made or created Jesus, that the very first act of creation in Arius's mind was that God made Jesus So when Arius started talking about God, he did not begin talking about the Son of God or even God the Father. Arius began his idea of God by calling him the unoriginate or uncaused. What Arius meant by these two terms was that God was the uncreated creator. Arius began his discussions, his preaching, his understanding of God by referring to God as the creator. The problem with beginning any discussion of God as first creator is that you are defining your idea of God based upon his works, what he does, and not by his relationships. Arius began his understanding of God as creator and not trinity. And it seems so subtle, like it's not that big of a deal. But it is. 
we must begin our understanding of God, not based on his works, what he does as creator, but based on his relationships within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because any concept of God that does not from the outset include the mutual relations of father and son, the father begetting his son, that means he's of the same nature or essence. Any concept of God that does not from the outset include the mutual relations of the father and son bears no relation to the living God. You're walking on thin ice. You're close to error, close to being an Arian like Arius, and close to being a heretic. This was Athanasius's point when he spoke out and called out Arius in his distorted view of God in his aptly titled book, Against the Arians. What Athanasius was saying is, do not begin from God's works, creation, And call him maker or creator. Begin with calling him son or father. Here's what Athanasius said in Against the Arians. Therefore, it is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the son and call him father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. Athanasius was saying that you begin talking about God by talking about him as father first and not creator. And the council of Nicaea followed suit and followed the advice of Athanasius because this is the way the Nicene Creed begins, which we've looked at over the last few weeks. It says, we believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen. Now, notice the Nicene Creed is not denying the fact that God is creator, that he is the maker, but it does not begin defining God as creator or maker. It begins defining one God, the Father. So before we talk about God as creator, ruler, the maker of this world, we must see him first as Father. And we must go back to eternity past before any act of creation to see this. Before there was a created world, there was one God. Before there were any created things, there was one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this God was and is and shall always be triune. Father, Son, Spirit. So before we seek to know God in any other way, we must understand that He is triune. And when we go back into eternity past and we see the relationships of the Trinity, what we see, what we discover is God the Father loving His Son. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you want to know what God was doing before he created angels, before he created this world, before he created this universe, before he created Saturn and Jupiter and the Milky Way, before God was doing anything else in the universe? He was loving his son. 
John 17, 24. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This means that God is a loving Father through and through. God the Father is love. The Father is not just a job description of God. He created this world as a loving, selfless, giving Father. He rules as a loving, selfless, giving Father. He creates as a loving, selfless, giving Father. All that God the Father does is as Father. Make no mistake about it, Grace. He is sovereign. He is maker. He is the sovereign ruler and creator of this world. But he sovereignly creates as father. So what makes us delight in him and enjoy him and behold him with wonder and awe as the sovereign creator and ruler? What makes us delight in his providence, in his sovereignty? What makes us affirm with joy the Westminster Confession of Faith when it defines God's providence? And maybe you don't affirm it with joy, but I do. What makes me affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith with joy as it defines God's providence? This is what it says. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. According to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. What makes us delight in him and enjoy him and behold him with awe and wonder? as sovereign creator and ruler of this world? What makes us delight and enjoy and relish his providence, his sovereignty over everything that happens in this world? It's the very fact that he does all of these things as father. That's what causes us to rejoice and to delight in his providence. So understand this, Grace. What happens in your life does not happen because there is some cold, detached, unemotional, sovereign ruler and creator wreaking havoc in your life. What happens in your life is under the orchestration and care and direction of a loving, heavenly Father. A loving, heavenly Father who just so happens to be the sovereign ruler of the universe. And this God is the Father. And God the Father loves his children just like he loves his son, Jesus. A kind, loving, gentle, generous, giving Father is directing all of the affairs of your life. 
And the Father who is orchestrating your life loves you just like he loves his son, Jesus. The love, the affection, the care, the joy that exists in the relationship between God the Father and his son, Jesus, is exactly what is present in your relationship to God. Jesus says in John 17, 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. That's you, that's me, even as you loved me. And how was God the Father loving his son, Jesus? He was doing it with an eternal love. A love that does not have a statute of limitations. A love that you don't have to check the expiration date on. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 24. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Don't think that God doesn't love you. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father was loving His Son, Jesus. And that love overflowed to those whom He would choose to be His elect people. So this is true of you if you are a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. What Paul says in Ephesians 1 is true of you. If you've turned from your sins and repented and you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your only Savior and treasure and joy. What does Paul say in Ephesians 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, now notice this phrase, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, his beloved son, Jesus. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world. That's when God was loving his son, Jesus. God the Father was loving his son, Jesus, in eternity past, and that love spilled over into his choosing and electing his people to be adopted in the beloved, his son, Jesus Christ. That means the thought of communing with his people was the joy of God's heart from eternity past. That means it's been on God's heart for eternity past that one day he would would choose a people, he would create a people, and he would draw them, these rebels and scoundrels, around his throne to worship him and to commune with him and to fellowship with him because of his son, Jesus. The thoughts of communing with his people, with you and you and you, has been the joy of his heart for all of eternity. It's amazing. It is overwhelming. I am flabbergasted that he loves me. And people say studying the Trinity is boring. Are you kidding me? I build my life on these verses out of Ephesians 1. I build my life on John 17. It's why I get out of bed in the morning because I know it is true 
I know it's true that God the Father loves his children just like he loves his son. And that's exactly what Paul will tell the Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Greek word here for beloved, beloved. Same word that was used of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1. It refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. The word beloved here refers to an only child to whom parents would devote all of their love. That means that the love that God the Father has always had for his one and only son, Jesus, his beloved son, he now has for you just as if you were his only child. Are you not flabbergasted by this? That God loves each of us as if we were his only child. God loves you and you and you and you and you just as if you were his only child ever. And he doles out his love and affection and devotion on you right now as if you were an only child. And he does it because of his beloved son. Do you believe, Christian, right now that God loves you? I know I struggle with it because I know my heart And I know my mind and my tongue and my actions and my motives. And I know that I'm sinful through and through. And I struggle daily to believe that he loves me. John Owen, a Puritan, said this. Believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. And they think herein they do well. Christians are notorious for being afraid to have good thoughts of God. We think it's too too much pride there, too brash, too arrogant for me to think that God is loving and kind and good. And we think that we're in the right, that we're doing the right thing to think this way. Thinking this way that God does not love you will sap the very life and joy out of you, grace. And these twisted, distorted thoughts of God will delight Satan to no end. But what effect does this kind of thinking have on God? When we think that God does not love us, it will sap us of our life. When we think that he's mean and that he's a Grinch, it will steal our joy and it will please Satan to no end. But what does it do to God? When we think this way. Here's where John Owen can help us. He says it is exceedingly grievous to the spirit of God. To be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves. For eminently the father himself loves you. Resolve of that. That you may hold communion with him in it. And be no more troubled about it. 
Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing of it. It grieves God's heart when we don't believe that he loves us with the same love that he loves his son Jesus. But what do we typically do? We doubt his love. We stay away from him when we sin. We run from the Father who stands with arms wide open waiting for us to run to him. He desires us to run into his arms, to be strengthened by his Son and by the Spirit. And what do we do? We run. Kelly Capix says run from him. That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. Running to God and feeling the warmth of his fatherly embrace when you are dirty and smelly and stinking of sin is the glory of the gospel. Because Jesus came to save dirty, smelly, stinky sinners. It's what he's about And yet we run from him and he stands, come to me dirty, come to me stinky, come to service, church, I don't care what you did last night, the father says, come, I am your father and I love you with the same love that I love my son, Jesus. That's to believe the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel, that you come filthy daily several times a day to your father and he welcomes you with open arms because of his son Jesus. One lady describes the glory of the gospel this way. She says, one day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter, and I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline, it was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully clothespinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me. And punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I had not realized the impact that event and others like it had on me. Not believing God concerning his delight in me. And in the gracious nature of my relationship with him. This memory returned to me. As I remembered these scenes from the past. I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. I told our counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory about my father and said that I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't understand fully, my counselor said. God would not overlook the shirt. 
but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I am beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. It is the fact that my father delights even in rusty shirts that moves this most flinty heart of mine to really desire a life disciplined to seek him and find him and by his power at work in me to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. What a joy to know that our needs are a window to God, not an obstacle that makes him disgusted with us. God the Father loves his children just like he loves his son. And the proof of that love is that he sent his son Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus says in John 17. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to become sin for us on the cross. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we all deserve. And God raised him from the dead. And he sits at God's right hand and he's coming one day to judge the world. That is the proof of his love. Christian, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. You are more sinful than you could ever, ever imagine. Which you are more loved by God than you could ever dream. Christian, there is nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any less. So don't think he loves you anymore because you have your quiet time, because you serve in Awana. It's not why he loves you. He loves you with the love that he was loving his son with from eternity past. Don't think that he doesn't love you because you don't have a quiet time or serve at Awana. There's nothing you could ever, ever, ever do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that you could ever do to make him love you any less. So listen once more to my friend and counselor, John Owen, because he says it so much better than I ever could. So much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. What he's saying is that if you don't understand the love of God, you'll never delight in him. That it's the key. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once much taken up with this, the eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. This, if anything, will work upon us to make our abode with him. In other words, understanding God's love, that's the thing that will make us run to him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Put this then to the venture. 
exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts be not wrought upon to delight in him. I dare boldly say, believers will find it as thriving a course as ever they pitched on in their lives. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able, after a while, to keep at a distance for a moment. God loves you just like he loves his son. Let's sit down a little at the fountain and discover the sweetness of the streams. Actually, let's stand now and let's raise our voices and raise our arms and declare how much he loves us. Oh, Father, your word says in 1 John 3, 1, see what love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God. I don't understand it, God. It seems too good to be true that you would love me, but you do, and I believe it, and I'm flabbergasted that you would keep loving me, and it's only because of the love that you've been loving your son with from eternity past that it would ever spill over to me and to everyone here who has called upon your name. Thank you for loving rebellious sinners like us. Thank you for adopting us into your family and calling us children. Thank you, Father, that you take the shirts that are covered with rust and you proudly wear them and say, these are my children. And you do that in the gospel promise when you say, I will be your God and you will be my people. Batter our hearts, O three-person God, as John Dunn said. Batter our hearts, O three-person God, in Jesus' name, amen.